Politics always entails theater, drama, performance. In all of human history, it's not enough to merely think things together and share the same notions. These notions must become manifest in images, contracts, rituals that reinforce the bonds between who we are and what has happened. Satire, parody, that's no small part of this, because it portrays what has happened, or rather, what could have happened, as something darkly similar to, and almost more essentially true, than what really transpired. In the 1960s, the right-wing satirist Pier Francesco Pingitori published a magazine called Como il Teatro che fa la sua fortuna, something like The Theater That Makes Its Own Fortune. The title references the Teatro della Fortuna, constructed during the mid-19th century in the city of Fano, famous for its carnival tradition dating back to the Middle Ages. With its role reversals, delirious abundance, and general upheaval, carnival theater tends to represent the joining of opposed forces vis-a-vis the continuity of a collective project. In its complicated opposition and fusion of sacred and profane, the carnival aims, quote, at questioning, disrupting, and dismantling the current symbolic and social order, in the words of Uruguayan sociologist Gustavo Remeri. We know that generation of fascists was keen on elements of medieval carnival, particularly parody, and called themselves goliards after the sardonic monks like Rabelais, who ridiculed conventional social norms. In Mikhail Bakhtin's influential book, Rabelais and His World, quote, Carnival is the people's second life. Its feasts marked a reconciliation with life and death, a, quote, temporary liberation from the prevailing truth and the established order within the, quote, suspension of all hierarchical precedents. In this grotesque realism, as Bakhtin calls it, Degradation digs a bodily grave for a new birth. There's something Dionysian about the carnival, a mix of grotesque and beautiful, the comedic and the tragic, and there's something carnivalesque about parody and satire, which can abuse people to degrade them with the goal of equalizing social relations. In a way, the carnival is like a temporary revolution, or rather, the revolution is carnivalesque. What the Calabrian satirist was thinking in 1966 when his Come il Teatro che fa la sua fortuna came out with the sketch Dio salve il presidente, I'll never know. Perhaps he'd heard rumors of the meeting of Ordine Nuovo two years prior, during the political chaos that gave rise to the center-left formula, in which some of the fascist paramilitary movement called for the kidnapping of its leader, Aldo Moro, before he could form the government. Either way, the 30-something Pingitore wrote in his 1966 sketch of a possible comedy, quote, Mr. Morrow's most dangerous moment of the day is going out in the morning. At 8.30 or 9, he leaves Via del Forte Triunfale and gets into the backseat of the ministerial car preceded by a white Giulia and followed by another blue Giulia. The carabinieri take their seats on the first, the agents on the second, 
The procession heads for Via Triunfale, then to the left for Via Fani, and then for Via della Camilucia, up to the church of Santa Chiara dei Due Pini. Would this scenario not flip everything on its head? Well, the same year, Pingitore would write a hit song called Avanti Ragazzi di Buda, a panjaric to the youth who participated in the 1956 Hungarian uprising. That's Buda as in Budapest. The song would later earn him the Knight's Cross of the Hungarian Order of Merit, and his comedic designs about a Moro kidnapping on Viafani would drift into the ether of Italian culture until the fateful morning of March 16, 1978. What I do know is that on that day, precisely at the corner of Viafani and Via della Camilucia, a very influential man is leaving his family's apartment at 9 a.m. It's an early start, to give enough time to prepare to present himself before Parliament. The vote was today, March 16th, on the so-called Government of National Solidarity, joining the Christian Democrats and Communist Party in a gesture of goodwill. Well, our influential politician knew he couldn't just nip it in the bud with a decisive no, but his vote would be a record for posterity. Thinking of history, though, he suddenly remembered as he entered the garage that he left his papers on the desk, scattered higgledy-piggledy. What if his daughter shut the door, opened a window, causing them to fall into greater disarray? This was part of a six-volume work on the history of fascism, and he wanted to coddle it. He stormed back up the steps and returned to his quarters just in time to hear the popping of gunshots outside. Dozens of them. More than 50 shots that seemed to go on interminably. Papa, they're shooting, his daughter cried out. The thought raced through his head. Is it intended for me? Has there been a mistake? Everyone was terrified in those days. The parliamentarian jolted to the window in time to see a getaway. Taking down the license plate, he called the police switchboard. At least two calls had already come in, the first at 9.05 a.m., but fascist MP Pino Rautis was one of the first. Official document record at 9.15 a.m., 113 call to the police. Mr. Rauti communicates that he heard machine guns being fired and that he saw a blue Fiat 132 with the Roman registration number P79560 leaving with young people on board and two dressed as Air Force officers. Aldomoro had been kidnapped by the Red Brigades and Pino Rauti was an eyewitness. In what world does the most notorious fascist paramilitary leader in Italy, a wolf donning the sheep's clothing of the parliamentarian, mortal enemy of the center-left, become one of the first to call the emergency hotline and report the public kidnapping of his bitter nemesis occurring less than a hundred yards from his front door by an armed group responsible for murdering members of his own fascist party? A cruel and unforgiving one, no doubt, but also no stranger to irony. On March 16th, fiction became fact. Comedy became tragedy. The hierarchy was inverted, and the Italian political world was turned upside down. Everything that had been ordered flew into disorder. A whirlwind hit Italy, changing 
the course of that country's history and drawing it into paroxysms that signaled the coming of the end of the Republic as it existed to that point. Aldo Moro had been kidnapped in broad daylight during a daring operation that the Red Brigades had codenamed Fritz, in which his five police escorts had been summarily massacred. Was Italy entering its revolutionary moment? Everything and nothing can be said about the 55 days of Moro's captivity. For some, those days passed like a never-ending carnival, allowing the ridicule of the political class to reach a fever pitch as stolid and discreet politicians tore one another and themselves to shreds over the hysterical utterances of armed urban guerrillas. Fascists look on with barely contained glee, passed off as snarling contempt for Moro, who would have allowed himself to have been kidnapped by such crazy characters? Some on the far left extolled the kidnapping as a revolutionary act. Others debated over the merits of executing the left-of-center politician who dared hope for a less polarized political climate. Others sought to free the captive by scouring the Italian underworld for clues, an underworld all too ready for the ride. During a time when the fate of everything and everyone seemed to hinge on the decisions of maniacal ideologues, the powerlessness of the powerful appeared in plain sight across the massive gap between the political cultures of the technocrats in power and the working poor. I say this not at all to demean Moro or his plight, but precisely to show that it opened a radical fissure in the space and time coordinates within the Italian state entering a timeline that would collapse the main assumptions on which the Republic had been formed. Reading Moro's memoir, left unsent by the Red Brigades, only to be later found and released by the Carabinieri, sometimes it feels as though he felt himself a captor of his own image, which he had impressed upon Italian political life through the creation of an immaculate concept of shared values. Everything he tried to produce the vision of a third age in which the politics of alliances and axes across struggling sects would dissolve into the general interest of participatory, participatory democratic culture, it had turned into the weapons now pointed at his face. The political machine of compromise he had created now locked the communists and Christian democrats into a path that seemed inexorably determined to sacrifice its creator at the inception of their new order, an apocalyptic vision of the beloved community following the disintegration of the capitalist system. In those letters, all the bile that the great man of Italian politics had built up but never released, all his resentments, regrets, and grievances, painfully stored away and kept secret in the name of compromise, came gushing out. All the negative sides of the establishment he composed, always carefully balanced to be outweighed by the good, added up to an asymmetrical leverage point through which his political project, which he viewed as part of a sacred mission, could be turned on its head and ultimately defiled as political theater. Over the next two decades, the right-wing satirist Pingitore, who had written that early sketch or incredible prediction, turned back to the carnivalesque, 
hosting a kind of vaudeville theater during which Italian politicians would line up on stage to receive pies in the face, a much easier form of popular venting than what transpired during the 55 days beginning on March 16, 1978, which marked the Red Brigade's infamous spring campaign and the beginning of the end for both the Italian revolutionary left and the thing it sought to overthrow. So, what was the spring campaign, and what did the Red Brigades really seek to accomplish? This is the true story of the Red Brigades' formulation of the spring campaign, what it meant to them, the sweeping vision of the world that it contained, and what it hoped to do at the critical inflection point of Italy's creeping civil war, the kidnapping of Aldo Moro. Hi, everybody. I'm Alexander Reed Roth, and this is the Morocast, uh, having taken over the years of Lead Pod. And today we're going to talk about the spring campaign. So get ready. So, <sighs> I'm going to stop that now. It is fitting that the Brigate Rosse's pamphlet dedicated to the spring campaign includes overtones of antiquity, recognizing in systems of modern accumulation the old forms of medieval persecution. Quote, Let's not overlook the fact that in many cases, the uniforms include the atavistic hunger for underdevelopment, the age-old ignorance in which the bourgeoisie has imprisoned peasants and shepherds, the despair of chronic unemployment, the absence of social and political consciousness, more than a real conscious counter-revolutionary determination, they write. But this consideration, which we keep in mind at the present stage of the struggle, absolves no one. From the hatred of the metropolis that formed their galvanizing principles, the brigades held anti-modernist positions and idealized the days of the peasants. Gallinari's parents were peasants. He grew up working the land and he called his autobiography Peasants in the Metropolis. Mario Moretti wrote lengthy lucubrations on the Milan haze, remembering it with disdain. Marika Gol wrote back to her parents about how miserable Milan had become to her. In the words of Alessandro Orsini, the Brigate Rosse were, quote, a messianic response to the trauma caused by the modernization process that was to change the face of Italy in the space of a few years. Steeped in the hard life of clandestineity, Real life had become ephemeral, halting, broken, while messianic time opened into a space of allegory and every action, every attack, was pregnant with meaning. Moretti himself used to say, quote, There are no technical failures, only ideological ones. Deeds were the sum of the rationality that strung thoughts together in a chain of reason leading all the way to the present, making every decision a kind of existential crossroads. Spring of 1978, a time of rebirth and renewal, heralded by the two massive holidays of the Republic. The first, a national one, April 25th, Liberation Day. And the second, a proletarian one, May the 1st, holiday of the Maypole and commemoration of peasant festivals. But as Stravinsky reminds us, the rites of spring were also a ritual of painful sacrifice, of brutally imagined massacres mixed with ritualized decadence. The most essential thing to understand about the spring campaign is that it marked the important turn of the Red Brigades from attacking the heart of the state as a congealed body of communists, Christian Democrats, social democrats, industrialists, and fascists, to focusing completely on the Christian Democrats. 
We see some of this already in 1977, as the Red Brigade set about kneecapping a number of mid-level DC councillors whose influence was quite limited. For the brigades, who experienced no small rebuke after assassinating the deputy editor of La Stampa, Carlo Casaleño, and injuring a Communist Party functionary in Genoa, Carlo Castellano, the ultimate targeting of the DC was also a way of avoiding unwanted backlash from the left. If it had its roots in attacking the heart of the state, something the Brigate Rosse had proclaimed since the kidnapping of Magistrate Mario Sosi in 1974, the spring campaign also emerged from the minds of the historic nucleus behind bars, who had initially conceived of that line. Given the capacity to communicate with one another behind bars of the special prison in Asinara, the historic nucleus had a chance to conspire together and exchange messages, sometimes in code, with the outside. The characters involved here should be familiar to us. Renato Curcio, along with Alberto Franceschini and Roberto Onibene, both originally from the Reggio Emilia group of the apartment. Joining them was Giorgio Semeria, who had been shot by police during his arrest on March 22, 1976, at a Milan train station. Samaria claims that during his hospitalization following the shooting, the police attempted to cart him off to a military hospital where they might have finished the job had nurses and a bloodstained surgeon not chased them off. The repression was always like this, waiting for wounded men to bleed out in the police station before finally taking them to the hospital for a desperate last-minute job. The prison of Asinara is, in fact, its own story, having been the site of a prison riot that touched off in the wave of rebellions that marked the late 1960s and gave birth to Lotto Continua's prison commission and ultimately the Nuclear Mati Proletari, with whose militants the Brigate Rosse now collaborated from cell to cell during scant periods of eating and recreation. A year after Samaria's arrest, an operation commanded by the Carabinieri under Della Chiesa transferred some 600 other prisoners through NATO airports and military vehicles to the prisons of Cuneo, Gavignana, Fossombrone, Trani, and Asinara, forming the new special prison framework chiseled out of a May 1977 resolution. It's therefore impossible to understand the spring campaign without understanding the Red Brigade's relationship at this point to the growing prison complex. But before we get too far into that, we need to go back and establish one crucial fact. The spring campaign didn't appear out of thin air. It developed out of the clearly articulated and overwrought strategic course of the Red Brigade's that they had been following since the 1976 assassination of head magistrate Francesco Coco. As described in lurid detail through the episode on their attacks in 1977, Knights of a Bloody Apocalypse, the Red Brigades had become almost exclusively focused on shooting people in the legs and murdering them, rather than kidnappings and bank robberies, which were themselves an escalation on their earlier arson attacks, the brigades took a bloody turn after the police killing of founding member Marika Gol and started taking people's kneecaps or just straight up killing them. This is a process more or less spelled out in their 1977 document, Pamphlet Number 4. Here, they insisted finally that the heart of the state to which they had taken their attack, was in fact nothing else than the Christian Democrat Party. 
The North Atlantic, combined with Japan, were calmly and smoothly taking over the world by taking over and refitting the European Economic Committee, the International Monetary Fund, and NATO to suppress the urban guerrilla and any revolutionary hopes. While other parties were joining in the government of no confidence, or the government of abstentions, that year, only the D.C. could be singled out as the prime mover, the head of the state, which determined the entire course of Italian political reality and took its marching orders from the U.S., or that's what the Red Brigades believed. In keeping with the street movement at the time, whose run-in with communion and liberation prompted the protests that cascaded into giant riots after the police killing of Francesco LaRusso in Bologna, the Red Brigades singled out communion and liberation. To the Brigate Rosse, communion and liberation, quote, in fact, has replaced the fascist groups in the universities, many of which have joined its security services. CL represents one of the most organized groups of which the DC disposes to organize the most sinister indifference and consent to the project of imperialist restructuring of the state. The Brigatisti noted that they would hit Christian democratic targets depending on the, quote, weight and effective function they have in the restructuring project. It is therefore a question for the revolutionary forces of identifying and striking the men and structures that articulate the Christian democratic powers at all levels. The attack must engage at all levels because, as the brigades would later clarify, to them there were no levels. The Christian Democrats had to be hit at every institution, schools, neighborhoods, prisons, everywhere, in a massive attack expressing together the line that, quote, it is the whole DC that must be destroyed. Last but not least is the brigade's new fixation on the Red Army faction. I mean, yes, they had always really loved the Red Army faction, and they had contacts with them, too. You know, this is a group that they'd become tied in with for quite a while. It was perhaps uh, that the radical left-wing millionaire publisher Gian Giacomo Feltrinelli might have helped to facilitate some of their connections before his untimely death in 1972. However, it's certain that they made deeper connections through Hyperion in Paris after 1976. Pamphlet number four came out around the time of October 18th, 1977, the day that the Red Army faction members Andreas Bader and Gundren Enslin allegedly shot themselves, Jan Karl Raspe allegedly hanged himself, and Irmgard Muller allegedly stabbed herself four times in the chest. The story that they committed suicide together in the high-security special prison of Stamheim was contradicted by Muller, who, having survived the makeshift knife wounds, insisted that the deaths came at the hands of the German government. The state denied involvement in the alleged suicides, of course, but the Brigate Rosse and other European militants rejected the official story, using October 18th as a catalyst for further attacks. Indeed, it had been the certainty with which Carlo Casaleño had dismissed the announcement of state murder in Stamheim by Moller that sealed the Brigate Rosse's death sentence against him. Pamphlet 4 extolled the RAF as, quote, fundamental point of reference for the revolutionary initiative, castigating the German bourgeoisie as the head of Europe. 
Social democracy, in light of the Stammheim deaths, showed itself to the brigades as the, quote, vehicle of reformist fascism. One thing that hasn't escaped the keen eye of researchers and has been admitted by brigadist leaders like Mario Moretti is the pamphlet is that the pamphlet exhibited the separation of the armed group from the movement more broadly, which became known as their notorious self-referentiality. Their growing body of writings on strategy only built on previous rhetorical devices they had developed, like the imperialist state of the multinationals. The broadening lexicon of organization-specific jargon ported into every pamphlet had to be unpacked and re-explained at every juncture, burdening their statements with overwrought concepts. Moretti says, part of this came as the result of the failure to integrate with the youth movements of the period. Quote, we interacted little with them. They were close to us in the radical nature of their claims, in the extraneous to institutional mechanisms, in the maturity of their practices, but very distant in not knowing how to give themselves or even wanting a direction, a goal. They certainly didn't look to our direction. We didn't like the theories that we heard around at all. They were useless for a revolutionary practice that in the end put everyone at a crossroads. Either you go to war or you lose without even having fought. While pamphlet number four didn't talk about Aldo Moro as suspect number one in the creation of the heart of the state, he had already been indicated as a target for kidnapping the monk prior to its release by the executive committee, according to Valerio Marucci. The Rome column had carried out information gathering operations against him, as well as the other two main Christian Democrat politicians, Giulio Andreotti and Amintore Fanfani. These efforts, taking place during the early months of 1977, yielded profiles of each figure. Andreotti seemed the most closely guarded. He lived in Corso Vittorio Emanuele II and rode in an armored alfetta, always followed by another alfetta with the rest of his escort. The dense traffic around his work and the presence of police surveillance suggested he was not a great target. Meanwhile, Fanfani hardly left his gated community, so he was ruled out as well. Meanwhile, the brigade's attacks continued through 77 and into 78. In January, the Turin column caught a fiat functionary named Gustavo Girotto in the underground garage of his apartment building and shot him in the legs. This was claimed as part of the executive committee's campaign, quote, against the hierarchical apparatus of fiat. The attack was led by former fiat worker Cristoforo Piancone, who had joined the Red Brigades during the 1973 fiat occupation, along with Patrizio Pecci from San Benedetto del Tronto and Vincenzo Acella, one of the most obscure of the Red Brigades. Giroto would lose about 45% of the function of his legs for the rest of his life. Just a few days later in Rome, the brigades hit Raffaele de Rosa, a 54-year-old PR executive at SIP, the state-owned telephone company. And a few days after that in Genoa, it was Filippo Peschiera, a provincial Christian Democrat committee member and professor of labor law at the higher education school. Pasquiera was restrained, had a sign hung around his neck, and was shot five times in the legs. And another few days after that, 
Nikola Toma from Sitsimens was also shot in the legs. That was just in January. February's activities sparked up on Valentine's Day with the murder of Ricardo Palma, a member of the Ministry of Justice's office dealing with managing funds for prison construction. Palma was leaving his house to get into his car on the way to work when two brigadists approached him and killed him on the spot. From behind bars, Renato Curcio rankled at the apparent pointless killing, marking the new recruits down for militarism, unbefitting of the Revolutionary Party. Franceschini claims that immediately after this murder, a witness told the conspiracy-minded rebel Corrado Simeone about the news, saying, Wow, we're always talking about the revolution and armed struggle, and then we never do anything. The Red Brigades, on the other hand, do their own thing. Simeone responded, don't worry, because we are the head of the Red Brigades. We have comrades in command function within the Red Brigades. Indeed, investigators determined that the perpetrator of the February 14, 1978 Palma murder had not been a new recruit, but Prospero Gallinari, one of those in the brigades closest to Simeone and his super clan organization. Now, if you've listened to this podcast for a little while, you might be thinking, didn't he go to prison a little while back after being arrested by the police on his way to robbing a bank? The answer is yes. But he had broken out in 1977. Sent to Alessandria prison, where a hostage situation had been assaulted by the Carabinieri in 1974, leading to a number of deaths, Gallinari was then transferred to Le Nuove prison, from which he tried to plot out an escape of another inmate involving burying him under a few feet of trash and replacing him in bed with a puppet moving by the use of pulleys and strings. But just before the garbage truck pulled out of the gates, the guy in the trash jumped out and tried to run, triggering all sorts of alarms and blowing up the whole operation. Then Gallinari's transferred to Padua and finally to Treviso. The prison in Treviso had suffered some structural damage from the 1976 Fruli earthquake, though, so there are opportunities for escape. I'll read from Gallinari's account of what happened there in early 1977. The operation starts from the criminal section. Ten prisoners involved in the work are in that ward. We are divided by two doors, four gates, and a straight corridor about a hundred meters long. My job is to check through the peephole in the judiciary's door the moment when our comrades will be able to leave the penal block, and the thing finally begins. One of them has simulated a sudden illness, and altogether they're already beyond the first door. I kick off in our section. Two inmates who, meanwhile, were casually chatting with the guards on duty, draw their knives and force them to follow us. We're facing the long corridor. At the other end, with weapons drawn, a dozen guards and the brigadier in hand, the other prisoners advance to open the door for us. You take the infirmary. Then it's the turn of the guards' dormitory. A couple of them are arriving from the juvenile section, and they become suspicious when they hear unusual noises. We wait for a few infinite seconds behind the wall. Not a fly flies anymore. 
The guards calm down and enter the dormitories. We take them too. The interior of the prison is now under our control, but the entrance door to the interwall of any penitentiary, even if superprisons had not yet been inaugurated at the time, can never be opened from the inside. The last hurdle to overcome is also the most difficult because the entrance to the prison is always made up of a double entrance room, inside which armed guards are stationed, one of which can open only one door at a time, and only on the basis of absolute security guarantees. Therein lies the weak point of our plan. Our hope is placed in the sergeant we have in hand, or rather, it lies in the fact that Montecchio, who has already shot a prisoner on duty in another escape attempt, is convincing, and the work of persuasion bears fruit. The sergeant, who also has the habit of going out around that hour, even when he's on duty, to get a coffee, rings at the mother of all doors. The guard watches him through the peephole, Everything seems peaceful. When I hear the key fit into the lock and start turning, it sounds like hell to me. Freedom is before us. From the porter's lounge, we take machine guns and pistols and lock the guards in a sort of a cell, they're never missing, that we find there at the entrance. From that moment, the stampede begins. I'm the last one out, and I have to pull the door behind me. After piling into a small car with six other escaped convicts, Gallinari and his new gang come up on a bar and hijack more cars from the gaggle of onlookers, stupefied by the clown car of armed felons. Driving a bit further, they split up, abandon the new cars, and hijack others. This takes place a few times before he and two of his closest associates make their way over to Padua. The first brigadist he makes contact with is Franco Bonisoli, his old comrade from the days of Sinistra Proletaria in Reggio Emilia, and he makes his way back to Turin by bus. With Bonisoli, he moves to Soliciano, on the outskirts of Florence, where a new special prison is being built. They're supposed to be coordinating the logistics of safe houses and recruits through a part of the organization not participating in violent activities. However, one night, Prima Linea planted explosives in the construction site of the prison, blowing some of it up. The Red Brigade's members fled the site at 7 a.m., fearing an immediate police inquiry into their and other neighboring buildings. The group moves to a seaside town, but soon after Gallinari is needed back in Rome for the more serious stuff. He's brought by Mario Moretti into a new apartment in Rome, where he participates in what he calls the dungeon. Quote, you need to carve out a space for the dungeon so that the level of camouflage allows the detention of the kidnapped person in a closed and soundproofed environment and is also able to pass any external checks. Manual work, but also fantasy and imagination. At the end of the work, we can say we are satisfied. A piece of the room has disappeared, but an exact knowledge of the plan of the apartment would be needed to identify the space hidden from view. The first violent action that Gallinari takes part in with the brigades after escaping from prison is Publio Fiori, a counselor who always criticizes the protest movement. I discussed that shooting, which went awry when Fiori pulled his own gun, in the previous episode on the BR, so I won't go into any more detail about it here. 
sufficient to say that the Fiori wounding helps steal Gallinari's nerves for the next act, the February 1978 killing of Ricardo Palma, which is left to Gallinari after his companion gets cold feet at the last moment. About a week later, bank manager Giorgio Borghetti is shot by the passenger of a motorcycle. And then a couple of weeks later, we're now just days from the massacre of Viafani, the brigade's murder Turin police officer Rosario Berardi. Now, Berardi had been moved from the special anti-terrorism police force, the Digos, to the regular cops. Patrizio Pecci later claimed that the shooting had been a misunderstanding, However, Lauro Azzolini said it was no such thing. Quote, Rosario Berardi was one of those Digos officials who suddenly, when the Corps began to function, were sent to normal police stations, brought back, one would have said, to the police routine. The press, whether they bid it or received a memo, gave space to the thesis of demobilization. It was exactly the opposite. The Digos had finally realized that terrorism was a social phenomenon to be identified and struck at its social base in the territory. We discovered that the police had created tiger machines, as was done in Vietnam. Let's say anti-terrorist checks in the police stations, to which anti-terrorism experts like Berardi were sent. They used the police station and its numerous opportunities for blackmail to create a network of informants, including porters, shopkeepers, newsagents, postmen. We studied the armed occupation of a police station with two purposes, to look for evidence of the information network and to make the authorities understand that the game had been discovered, but required forces we did not have. So we fell back on the elimination of some outstanding policemen. Berardi in Turin, Esposito in Genoa. The repression was becoming suffocating. Those killings were intended to curb the filing and to frighten the informants. It's difficult to know whether or not Berardi had, in fact, been planted by the Digos in the Turin police force. It might have been true that he instead just wanted a less dangerous job. However, he had been responsible for the arrests of comrades and the uncovering of a BR safe house in Turin, so the, that factored into the killing, too. On the day of the killing, it was Piancone and Acella who did the shooting while Berardi waited for tram number 7 to arrive at Corso Belgio, hitting him three times in the back and then finishing the job with two shots to the head. In the words of Marco Clementi, quote, With the spring campaign, the Red Brigades wanted to present themselves as an alternative political force to the system, capable of imposing certain choices on it. It was to be a decisive intervention, something that built on the murder and kneecappings of the previous months and extended them into a new season of terror. For the 55 days of Moro's incarceration, we can call it incarceration in the so-called people's prison, not to glorify a kidnapping, but to mark precisely that nature at the kernel of its ideation as a glorified kidnapping without remarking here on the virtues or ignominies of the modern prison system per se. For those 55 days, the Red Brigades helped sow chaos and inspire a kind of proletarian spring to rise up everywhere in the formation of a new armed party.
By placing themselves at the front of the proletariat as its vanguard, they'd hoped that the spring campaign would help the militants of the area of autonomia and the various armed groups multiplying amid and after the urban warfare of 1977 get organized into concerted revolutionary armed forces under their leadership as a strategic nucleus of the combat party. The brigades conceived of the spring campaign as a grand action that would turn the tables on the Italian ruling party, propagate revolutionary violence, and lead to consolidation of armed forces of the proletariat. While the management group didn't tell those of the historic nucleus behind bars what they were up to, they did ask the imprisoned brigadists to produce a strategic resolution that would put the spring campaign into the context of their overall perspective. Enrico Fancy, the Genoese intellectual turned Brigate Rosse militant, later explained, quote, The strategic resolution for the spring campaign was written by the comrades in Asinara. The management presented it as their own and also made flyers from it. Yet according to Fancy, the plans for a Moro kidnapping were not disclosed to the historic nucleus. Instead, the strategic resolution of 1978 was appended to the fourth communique related to the spring campaign on April 4th, two and a half weeks into the Moro kidnapping, and published later in the unofficial organ of the Brigate Rosse Contro Educazione, which emerged largely from the area of former Potere Operaio members who now inhabited the Milanese Autonomia. Quote, Here, in my opinion, the decisive rift occurred between the historical group and Moretti, Fancy declares. The comrades from Asinara had been kept completely in the dark about the Moro operation, and when they were invited to make the strategic resolution, they had to think, but they only use us to make documents. They manage the guerrilla struggle as they see fit, and then they turn us into scribes. We might as well direct the guerrilla warfare from prison then. The Moro operation was handled with arrogance. Neither Moretti nor others were able to place Moro and the DC in their real political and historical context. It's useful to remember here that there are many different claims of the decisive break between the Red Brigades of the historic nucleus and those under Moretti's control. Each different scenario makes the other less believable. First, we find from Franceschini that the decisive break comes following the Coco assassination. Now we hear from Fancy that it's the strategic resolution of 1978. And we'll soon hear another one coming up on the horizon. Each time, the separation seems more tenuous. But we do know that the historic nucleus penned that strategic resolution, not just from Fancy, but also the others. So, Despite being published well into the kidnapping of Moro, it helps to dive into the strategic resolution to figure out what the brigades were thinking and what they wanted out of the spring campaign. In their 1978 resolution of the strategic management, the historic nucleus launched a tirade against their main nemesis, which they called the imperialist state of the multinationals and the imperialist bourgeoisie behind it. 
Quote, multinational imperialism therefore presents itself as a system of global domination in which the various national capitalisms are simply its organic articulations, and the different national areas exist as geographical expressions of the international division of labor it determines. We can therefore draw a first consideration. In every national area, the proletariat does not find itself dealing with its national bourgeoisie, but with the local articulation of the imperialist bourgeoisie. For the Red Brigades, the attack on local capitalists then translated internationally into a global struggle against imperialism. They defined it along three key qualities in the 1978 Strategic Resolution. Quote, formation of an imperialist political personnel, rigid centralization of state structures under the control of the executive, reformism and annihilation as integrated forms of the same function, preventative counter-revolution. Now, we can see here the brigades sneakily folding their notion of the Gaullist counter-revolution into their concept of the imperialist state of the multinationals. Since the Gaullist movement, also considered the presidentialist movement, had been represented most of all by Edgardo Sonio's failed white coup, most presidentialist plans had sunk down. The brigades, on the other hand, still saw the trappings of a presidentialist push on the horizon and believed it was part and parcel to the hardening and centralizing of the counter-revolutionary state, whose soft underbelly was austerity reforms. Now, they weren't completely wrong here, but they used a less strident overtone when they discussed the neo-Gaulism that they had initially struck out against. Instead of reactionary neo-Gaullists, they now targeted the DC in its entirety because only from a DC can the reconversion of the nation-state into an efficient link in the imperialist chain come about, and that is, can the ferocious economic policies and profound institutional transformations with an openly repressive function requested by the partners in the chain be imposed? Stealing a line from the playbook of the Red Army faction in Germany, the historic nucleus insists that, quote, the state is no longer the expression of the various parties, as in the liberal democratic tradition, but now it is the parties that are the expression of the state. Do the efforts of Aldo Moro to unify the parties on behalf of a compromise that would set into effect the third phase of post-war Italian history through a broad democratic front, the state had effectively chewed up and spit out all oppositions into a behemoth taking its directives from Washington. Now, they were correct that the Christian Democrats and other coalition parties, as adeptly summarized by Ugo Lamalfa of the Republican Party, needed the Communist Party to be part of the ruling government in some way because the workers would never have accepted austerity otherwise. However, the austerity was not directed by Washington. It was the result of repeated failures to corrupt inflation, which in 1977 had even been directed by the Communist Party in the Chamber and Senate through the Finance and Budgetary Committees, respectively. Furthermore, they were completely wrong that Washington was so Machiavellian as to plan the national solidarity government with the communists. Of course, Washington resisted the notion of the historic compromise until February 1978, and even then had enormous doubts about its implications for European security. So, 
While the Brigadists had the correct inference about the course of things towards austerity and the privatization of state industry for multinational corporate austerity, they were incorrect about the homogeneity of the Italian political class and its relationship with Washington, D.C. And it is precisely on the basis of this assumption of structural solidarity, in which the state becomes the first mover rather than the sum total of political order, that allows the Brigate Rosse to implicate everyone for the actions and inactions of anyone. Quote, the imperialist state of the multinationals therefore presents itself as a highly integrated and centralized reformist repressive structure, they write. On the one hand, we have peaceful instruments whose purpose is to ensure consensus of the masses, institutional parties, trade unions, mass media. On the other hand, the military tools whose purpose is annihilation. Special nuclei, courts, special forces, special prisons, and that is, forces for generalized repression. Both are coexisting and functional parts of the same policy. Both are forms of the same state. Incredibly, the brigades looked at the diverse media scene of Italy in the 1970s, with Eugenio Scalfari leading the breakaway La Repubblica from the storied folds of L'Espresso in 1976 and vying with its parent publication for progressive readership under the auspices of creating a new journalistic tendency, daring and counterintuitive, and said, the Italian media is all of one mind. As well, we must recall that the Moro project was precisely to foreground civil society as the basis of the state, so the Brigada's criticism of the state as controlling both the media and the special prisons in the same gesture would be fundamentally anathema to his entire line of thinking. We have to also remember that the right-wing press continually smeared Moro as a dyed-in-the-wool communist. Now, there's something to be said about the concept of the state form itself as an ideal type that unnecessarily totalizes social relations. But within their Marxist-Leninist ideology, it was not the state form that the brigadists sought to destroy. Their enemy, as mentioned, was the tyrannical beast that they saw as unified against the proletariat through which the communist trade unions and prison administrators shared the same goal. And of course... Here we arrive at the final verdict from the Brigate Rosse. They write that some people say, quote, that fascism and social democracy have in history mutually excluded each other. In the imperialist state, however, the substance of these political forms coexist, giving rise to an original regime, which is therefore neither fascist nor social democratic, but represents a dialectical overcoming of both. Some define the transition phase from armed peace to war as a process of fascism and the political form of the state in this phase as new fascism. We already saw in 1975 with the strategic resolutions that Curcio was able to co-author while briefly out of prison how the brigades tried to do the old song and dance of the liberals are the real fascists. In the 1978 resolution, however, they pulled back at this point, noting that revisionism had become a different beast entirely from fascism. It was perhaps indicative of some maturation on their part, intellectually speaking, though, through which they were able to leverage the Communist Party both as a subject of Soviet social imperialism and as a promoter of reformist Euro-communism, bent most of all on pacification within European nation-states. Still, the brigades argued that all of this adds up to the preventive counter-revolution. 
that quality that marked the epitome of fascism for the anarchist thinker Luigi Fabri, writing from exile during the 1920s. And here, they turn to the creation of the special prisons and its special prisoners. Remarking on the refusal to recognize political prisoners and armed groups from which they come, the brigades vent their frustrations against the denial of political identity, which for them is absolutely essential. Quote, the technicians of the counter-revolutionary party reduce collective action to a sum of individual behaviors, separate them from their motivations and from each other. In doing so, they try to take away their ability to represent a message. So, they criminalize, psychiatrize them, and strike them to destroy them. By denying the right to exist, to organized proletarian antagonism, the technicians of the counter-revolutionary war transfigure the militants into single criminal units without history or political substance. Here it would seem the Red Brigades make a point about the failure to identify and understand the sources underlying their misery, which they've converted into rage. But then they go, quote, More than criminalization, we must therefore speak of political genocide, because this is the deepest essence of the imperialist counter-revolution. In other words, they claim that communists are being genocided through Dalakiesa's special prisons, a roundly silly claim. They even go so far as to identify special prisons as concentration camps. Now, remember that a lot of the brigades are people with traumatic childhoods who have a tendency to victimize themselves while taking on big main character roles in international politics. Mario Moretti, the leader on the outside, was the recipient of the good graces of a nobleman who ended up shooting himself, his wife, and her lover during a cuckolding kink experiment gone wrong. Renato Curcio was separated from his mom and sent to a shitty repressive boarding school at a young age. Barbara Balzerani had a terrible relationship with her mother, while Adriana Ferranda was all but sent away by her strict but loving father. Ricardo Dura and Raffaele Fiore were both basically poor orphans from southern Italy. As I mentioned before, Prospero Gallinari, son of peasants, was picked on for being fat as a kid and grew up with a complex from that. The list goes on and on, but what we tend to see in terms of patterns is that the brigades tended to be comprised of miserable people who often channeled their disappointment with the promise of the industrialized world to a kind of blind hatred against anything and everything that could be understood as its authority figures. Ironically, the historic nucleus expends page after page of prose on the construction of the integration of new counter-terrorist forces throughout the European economic community without reflecting on the fact that their actions may have spurred it on. Their failure to recognize their own place within the dialectic between state forces and armed groups led them to place blame squarely on the side of the state without recognizing their own complicity in aggravating the tensions bringing about the changes that they had somewhat accurately diagnosed. At the same time, they were correct that a general Europe-wide push to formulate new punitive structures to house terrorists was in fact in effect, and this was most evidenced both in Asinara and Stamheim, where the Red Army faction's leaders had been placed. In point of fact, the brigades were terrified of what they called the Germanization of Italy, which I'll describe briefly right now. The notion of Germanization had been in circulation for some time, coming to the fore in a Naples conference on Germany and Germanization in February 1977, during which psychiatrist Alberto Monacordo 
coined the phrase clean torture and was promulgated in July 1977 statement signed by a number of French intellectuals on state repression in Italy, which appeared in Lotto Continua and prompted the Bologna Mass Assembly of Autonomists and Extra-Parliamentary Groups later on in September of that year. In the words of Clementi, Persichetti, and Sant'Elena, quote, the German prison of Stammheim became a symbolic place which represented a rationalized scientific modern repression, which was based on avant-garde psychological techniques such as sensory isolation of the prisoner. Toward the end of the strategic resolution, the brigades clarify that their new step in forming the armed party was made clear by the events of October 18th in Stammheim, the day of the RAF suicides, openly calling for the coordination of left-wing armed groups throughout Europe, something we note was already happening in Hyperion in Paris. The 1978 strategic resolution declares, quote, the continental dimension on which to calibrate the strategy of the revolutionary class war for communism appeared in all its evidence to all the combatant vanguardist groups that went into the fight in every country of Europe. It was not a moment, it was not a movement of simple solidarity or even demonstrations of democratic horror and indignation towards the final solution launched by the German government, they declare. Instead, the essential character of the offensive response was given in the identification common to all the class forces that have activated themselves in the various countries of the imperialist bourgeoisie and its German section as the main enemy of the entire metropolitan proletariat and its struggles for liberation for a communist society. And they conclude, quote, it was finally revealed on October 18th that a new offensive proletarian internationalism had matured in the consciousness of the fighting vanguards, outside and against the suffocating and fraudulent rhetoric of the reformist and revisionist left. So, during this maturation process of the Red Brigades, in which they find the notion of new fascism lacking in trying to theorize the process of preventive counter-revolution internationally, the prison system's new adaptations become massively important as the flip side to mass media, which is supposed to paper over an ongoing economic restructuring meant to make Europe governable again i.e. the preventive counter-revolution is divorced from fascism and foisted into the realm of the parliamentary republic as the reassertion of a kind of different, more centralized form of sovereignty, which they call the imperial state of the multinationals. This detailed schema indicates an ongoing form of warfare under the forces of the state understood as articulated or operating together in conjuncture with the goal of regression from the sovereignty of the people in mind. Though they never really proved that this unified path was taking place, contradictorily identifying the imperialist state of the multinationals as both a process and an existing thing, and in fact did admit in a number of places that the groups like parties and companies within Western countries were disunited on many levels, their ultimate strategic resolution called for the disarticulation of the enemy's forces. Quote, to disarticulate the enemy's forces means to carry out an attack whose main objective is still that of propagating the armed struggle and its necessity, but 
in the tactical principle proper to the next phase, the destruction of the enemy's forces is already beginning to operate. This attack must propagate the political line of the political military vanguard and at the same time disarticulate the new form that the imperialist state is assuming. That is, it must also tend to jam, create dysfunctions in the war apparatus that the counter-revolution is preparing. So, long story short, the Red Brigades has seen a consensus. So, long story short, the Red Brigades had seen a consensus within the governing parties to resolve the political crisis that had developed out of the economic crisis by joining hands in a show of national solidarity that would be able to enact economic reforms to try to resolve the crisis without the dissolution of the Republican system. In response, the Red Brigades called for attacks specifically against the Christian Democrats at the core of the Republican system, as well as the symbols and agents of multinational corporations. Noting the plethora of political attacks in 1977, more than 2,000 in all, and the fact that January 1978 indicated another 350 attacks already, the Red Brigade sort of abandoned the earlier contempt in which they held the area of autonomia and other extra-parliamentary groups and social movements, choosing instead to label them all part of the Proletarian Metropolitan Resistance Movement, or MRPO. Assessing in a rather ham-fisted fashion the economic divisions within the working class, the brigades observed that the MRPO is disunited and heterogeneous, declaring, quote, We fight for the subjective recomposition of the proletarian offensive resistance movement on the program of attacking the imperialist state and building the communist fighting party, or communist combat party. To do this, the Red Brigades wanted to stop the ideological tendency towards spontaneous action, insisting instead that the, quote, protracted revolutionary class war, they saw it, would only arise from the armed vanguards. In words that could have been written by General Dalla himself, they state, quote, it is the existence of a substantial fringe of the revolutionary proletariat which has created the conditions of creeping civil war as the real form in which the armed resistance movement has expressed itself. Crucially, the brigades add, quote, The Red Brigades are not the fighting Communist Party, but an armed vanguard working within the metropolitan proletariat for its construction as an essential point of reference as the strategic nucleus of the combat party under construction since its inception. So, there's a fair amount of retconning here that's taking place. The Red Brigades at their inception did not view themselves as the strategic nucleus of a communist combat party that would unite the forces of a so-called proletarian metropolitan resistance movement towards a protracted civil war against the multinational state of imperialism or whatever. These were all concepts that were manufactured from 1974 to 1977 and were subsequently imputed back into the group's timeline by the historic nucleus to produce the semblance of tactical and strategic harmonization. Of course, these ideas were in their germ around 1969-1970, but nowhere near as ornately developed as what we've seen now in 1978. For movementists like Valerio Marucci, the strategic resolutions were always a minefield, showing innumerable crises, aporias, and dilemmas plaguing the inchoate armed party. Quote, 
They were dogmatic and Stalinist, and what's more, they were dealing with an underground guerrilla movement, which is not exactly a walk in the park, and arrests were the order of the day. Given these premises, they couldn't just produce who knows what theoretical elaboration. So they grabbed here and there, readjusting what was needed and what they could. But given the objective difficulty mentioned above, the biggest work was done by the members of the Red Brigades in prison because they certainly had more time. So, the effort to develop a form of discourse, the strategic resolution, which would assert the brigade's overall rationale and ameliorate some of the divisions between the movementists and organizationalists, in fact, only deepened more extensive contradictions and provided what amounted to window dressing for the plots already developed by Mario Moretti and his allies within the movement on the outside. One of those allies, Mauro Azzolini, later told the journalist Giorgio Bocca, quote, Moro was one of the many objectives of this spring campaign. In those months, we did about 40 actions. It was supposed to be a crescendo. Moro was to remain a prisoner for months, while other characters were kidnapped. This was the point of disarticulation. They would not just strike Moro in order to gain one or another concession. They would instead use the Moro kidnapping as leverage while forcing open further divisions in the Italian state through persistent attacks. This persistence would trigger a revolutionary situation in which the possibility of reversing the hierarchical order of the state appeared, bringing the organization of disparate and ideologically disunited armed groups in, into effect around the brigade's strategic nucleus. This powerful combat party would strike at every level of Christian democracy, creating terror among its constituents and disarticulating its expressions of power. In other words, the armed party would make it virtually impossible for the Christian Democrats to continue to exist by striking hard, not just at its main leaders, but at everything that made it a reality in and for itself. By taking on the strategic direction of this effort, to be mobilized into a protracted revolutionary class war, the brigades saw themselves as prefiguring the real Communist Party that would ultimately rise to power. At no point did they believe that the brute force that they used would do the opposite of disarticulation. In fact, they ignored all evidence to the contrary, insisting that the militarization of the state was taking place due to the proletariat's self-activity rather than their own self-referential and alienated actions, which had initially taken place in tandem with workers' demands, but increasingly floated off into the world of clandestine, of clandestine isolation. They totally rejected the notion that they would cause, through their strangely individuated and sectarian paradigm, the reconsolidation of a central power far more united than anything seen in the few short decades since the fascist epoch. In their attempt to disintegrate the consensus of the political class by striking at what they saw as alternately weak links or linchpins, depending on the hour, by disarticulating the logical structure of reality under Christian Democrat rule, the brigadists only ended up intensifying, among the masses of Italy, the sense for a need for a strong system of law and order to coercively destroy the revolutionary movement by utterly cynical and perverse means. In his text on microfascism, gender war and death, Rutgers scholar Jack Z. Bradich describes the misogynist myth of the self-made man a kind of male fantasy of motherless patrilineal development. 
autogenic sovereignty is what he calls the, quote, producer of life-destroying reality, the attempt to generate fear-based desire that returns things to materiality. In this sense, we return to the grotesque realism of Bakhtin's carnival, only in the form of a reactionary upheaval. It is perhaps not unimportant that Mario Moretti, with all his authority as the head of an organization that held all of Italy, all of Italian democracy, in the palm of its hand, could not admit to his own companions that he was a fraud. His family line did not cut through generations of communist rebels, but straight through the fascist movement, and his own experiences right up through high school had always been aligned with the reactionary right. He was a self-made communist, and now he controlled the brigades like a cult, carefully regulating their sexual relations, cultivating in-group love, and violent hatred for the outside. But his myth of communist lineage was essential to travel in the circles and compete with the figures of the revolutionary left. Figures like the son of peasants, Prospero Gallinari, and the red diaper baby, Alberto Franceschini. Deeper still, it put him on the line to autogenesis, a man without a real past who hoped to totally annihilate the reality of the present in order to unleash through pure fear a sublime violence that could produce a new sovereign form of communism. The spring campaign, the very name evokes a rebirth, but in this case, only through death, only through death and a kind of protracted public sacrifice could that spring truly be heralded. If it's true that the plan to kidnap Moro on Via Fani had originated in the hothouse of Rabelaisian fascist parody, the very tragic comedy of it could only have been fulfilled by this left-wing group. Completely delusional with plans of glory, pursuing absolute power at any cost. It was this grotesque process of rebellion, a leveling of everything into materiality, a desublimation, and therefore a dismantling of the hierarchical structures that secured the order of the center-left that made the kidnapping of Aldo Moro such a tantalizing notion for comedic pulp in the satirical milieu of the far right. But to put it into practice, to become the giver of life or death in a real practice of necropolitics over the whole republic, the political right was not necessary. It's said that fascism comes from failed revolution, but less is said about the failure itself, the mirror games of power and reality, the hijacking of popular sovereignty by sectarian organizations with cryptic references and obscure networks, and the manipulative self-destruction that contains, in its murderous propensities, its own suicide. In the next episode... I'll cover the logistics of the ambush on Viafani, the brigade's initial clashes over the fate of Aldo Moro, and the Christian Democrats' complicated and compromised approaches to managing the disaster. So, I hope you learned a little bit about the spring campaign today. <laughs> this has been the Years of Lead Pod. I'm your host, Alexander Reed Ross, and as always, thank you very much for listening. <laughs>